All right. We're going to look into the scripture in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. An exciting and encouraging portion of our scriptures this morning. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, at verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, and the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we, who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is the word of the Lord. Before we get going, I forgot to mention, uh, we've got a couple uh, resources out there today for free. Uh, the table underneath the window, uh, room with the windows out there in the gathering place, a couple resources. First, uh, we got a bunch on membership, free books on kind of church membership, why we do it, what it is. If you're not quite sure or sold on it and you need to kind of think about it, there's uh, free books and some articles out there too even that I think you should uh, take a look at. Uh, and our church covenant as well, if you're like, what does that mean, covenant membership? And then also as we head into our topic today, as we're talking about the hope we have in the resurrection, and grief and death and how we find hope in death. Uh, We've got some resources out there as well, some free books on the end of the table on grief and death. Uh, If you have been in that season of life lately, um, those are out there as it's a little extra comfort and resource uh, today. Also today I want to mention, we, we always do this thing after we read scripture. We always respond with the word of the Lord. We say that together. Why do we do that? You know, there's not really any part of our worship service that doesn't have a purpose and a reason why we do something. And every once in a while I like to wa- talk the why behind something. I think that's so important. The why. Do we do it just because we do it? Do we do it just because it's tradition? Do we do it because it just sounds like a fun idea? No, why do we do something? We say the word uh, thanks be to God here because the pattern, here's a few reasons, the pattern of worship in the Bible is one of call and response. God's people have always done this throughout history. It's something that they do together. They call and respond back to the word of the Lord. Uh, here's another one. We don't summon God. He summons us to believe in him and the gospel and throughout scripture and obey and follow him. So we get a chance when we say thanks be to God to respond to his call on our life with, with the word which is happening now. Here's another reason. It's an opportunity for us to do something corporately, which means a body, the whole. We're engaged together in these parts of worship. Uh, Here's another one. There's a power in habits. Yes, they can become empty and rote, which is our final one, but there's a power in habits, doing something again and again. That's why the church has always done a lot of things in repetition, not so it'll just be empty uh, um, ritual, but so that it'll have life and and form and shape us. That's discipleship. Uh, Here's here's my favorite, I think. It's a real moment of individual and corporate thanks for God. Do you know the place where God's word works its best and where it was intended to work? You know, one-on-one quiet times and Bible studies, they're great. You should do them. But the overall pattern where where the Lord loves to see his word read and flourished is in the corporate gathering. That's why we do it. 
That's why we say thanks be to God uh, together. Well, we've been working our way through chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, where the Apostle Paul is writing to the church to help them and us understand how to increase, remember, increase in love more and more, and how to grow in holiness so that we will walk properly is the language before God to please him and outsiders as well, those who are watching us, those who don't know the Lord. We began applying the gospel three weeks back to the area, four weeks back to the area of sex in chapter four, and then it was the area of work, what we do with our hands, and today it is death and grieving. Would you bow with me as you just ask the Lord to bless this? Bless this time, Lord. Bless the hearts of those who are grieving today. Encourage us with the words by the power of your spirit, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. You know, my job as an expository preacher, which is what we do here, we open the Bible, we let text talk, we believe that the, the, uh, God still speaks, and primarily through his word he speaks. My job as an expository preacher is to get to the author's intent in a passage, what the author meant to the original audience. What was Paul trying to say to that original audience? Because he was writing to them. It's for us, but he wasn't writing to us. He was writing to them, and it's for us, though. And so how does it relate to us? So my, that's my job as an expository preacher. And as we come to this passage today, while it says much about the second coming, and that's going to be our main focus, we're going to talk a lot about the second coming, Paul's intent here, what he wants to do with this passage, is express a pastoral heart for the Thessalonians who were facing real suffering and real grief around the death of loved ones. His concern in this passage is way more pastoral than it is eschatological, which means end times. His purpose is way more pastoral, even though we're going to look at the second coming. What he wants to do is comfort the grieving through the second coming. The topic of this passage is actually death and grieving, but he uses the second coming to comfort those who are grieving. And he does it with that great intent and purpose rather than trying to pique curiosity or or make prophetic speculation. So we're going to talk a lot about the second coming. I won't get to say everything about it. But if we just focused on that as if it was a passage about that, we would miss Paul's entire point of this passage, which is to highlight the second coming and its glorious effects on the world to comfort those who are grieving. Our series title fits best today with this message. Our series title is Living Today While Longing for Tomorrow. So here's a question to get us going. How often do you think of Jesus' second coming? I want you to think about that in your mind. Our elders were talking about that this week as we were reading through uh, Wayne Grudem's couple chapters, Systematic Theology on the Coming of Christ and the Millennium. Um, How often do you think about Jesus' second coming? And if you do... Does it impact the way you live your life day to day? Maybe for good, but maybe, I don't know, maybe for bad too. We'll talk about that at the end. In this section of 1 Thessalonians, Paul wants to remind us of that coming of Jesus to be an event that causes us great hope. Hope in the here and now. So we're going to look at seven words of hope and encouragement this morning. Because that's what Paul wants to have happen, hope and encouragement. So if you've got your outline, grab it, have it open. That's there for those that learn visually or through writing and going back on notes. You've got your growth group questions there too. Have your outline text open. as we're, Let's look at our first 
word of encouragement. Here it is. Knowledge of the truth, Paul wants us to know, brings hope. A knowledge of the truth brings hope in life. Not just about around death and grief, but but about around everything in life. The Thessalonians were struggling. They were struggling. They were suffering. And the symptom, the result, was they were grieving just like the rest of the world. They were grieving just like everyone else. Paul would have called the pagans at that time. And in verse 13, Paul tells them, you are to grieve. It's right to grieve. You are to grieve. Christians should grieve, he says, but just not like the rest of the world who grieve without hope. It's a double negative there. He actually, he actually is saying in that first uh, verse there, uh, grieve hopefully. He's saying grieve hopefully. There is one or two things, one of two things or three that the Thessalonians were struggling with as, as commentators and theologians look at this, what, what were they struggling with? Here, here, here's a few of them. Either they had a misunderstanding that their relatives who died in Christ would in some way not experience uh, the fullness, the weight, the glory, the benefits of the second coming as those who would be alive at Christ's return. So that could have been one of the things they were struggling with. The passage seems to imply. Another one, it's possible they began to doubt the final resurrection of the dead, but maybe began to believe as other, other religions did at that time, and there were false teachers that had come into the church, maybe began to believe that they, after death, so we're going to live in this shadowy-like kind of existence, not a full resurrection, but some dark gray shadowy kind of existence, not the fullness of the second coming. Um, it's possible also that they had just began to doubt the reunion that they would have in heaven with those who died before them because he makes a real point of pointing that out. There's a few, one of few of those things, maybe it was more than one, that, were, that they were struggling with. They doubted that reunion, those who died before. So they, they were that rupture of death they were struggling with and, and, and it couldn't be put back together with their faulty theology. Paul says, I want you to be informed. They were uninformed on what is to come in the end of time. They needed, as our first encouragement is, they needed real knowledge to heal that rupture that death had caused in their life, a rupture that many of us have felt who have lost loved ones, family, or friends. Because death is a rupture, isn't it? It's a rupture in life. It's a rupture in normalcy, it feels like. It's a rupture in routine. It's a rupture, of course, of relationship, isn't it? It's a rupture. It's a rupture also of soul and body. Do you know? Our souls were never meant to be ripped apart from our body. Do you know that? That's why it's so hard. That's why it hurts. That's why we have fear about it. There was never meant to be that rupture. Yet it's common to all, isn't it? The word even widow or widower, which I know we have many here today, has this connotation, and you have felt it. It's a connotation of being torn apart. That's a rupture. That's pain. That's real life suffering. And like Paul says, I want you to be informed because knowledge of the truth will bring hope. It'll help us uh, make sense of death a little bit, 
It'll bring us hope. Maybe you're here today and you don't know Jesus. It's possible. I hope you're here. And maybe you don't know Jesus. But the one thing you do know, and all of us know, is that our culture we live in tries to make sense of death, don't we? We try to make sense of it in so many ways. How do we do that? Let me give some illustrations. How do we do that? Well, we talk about death and we kind of romanticize it at times. And even begin to say, it's just a natural part of life and it's even peaceful and it's beautiful. It's a beautiful part of life. So, so just to accept death. Have you heard anybody talk about death that way in our culture? It's not natural. Do you know that? It's common to all, I would say. It's not a natural part of life. Do you, do you get the difference? It's common to all, but it's not natural. We should grieve death. It is an enemy, Scripture says. It's not just this sweet part of life or natural. It's common, not natural. That's one way. Uh, you know, our culture tries to disarm death by just talking about it. If it was like a, a trip to the grocery store, yeah, it's just part of life, you know? Get over it. It's just part of life. Or we slap a holiday on it and give out a bunch of candy to make it sweeter. <laughs> That's coming up this week. Not that there's anything wrong with going trick-or-treating, but I mean, it's a holiday of death. It is. And if it's just kind of a little scary, we can give some candy with it. Those are real ways we kind of handle death. Or we try to disarm it in other ways by uh, saying, well, you know, when you die, it's just, you kind of cease to exist. Yeah, I just think you cease to exist. Well, guess what? That's a faith claim too. Because how do you know that? How can you prove that? That's a faith claim too. In the, in the, sense, in the same way it's a, a faith claim that we believe are resurrected, so is it a faith claim to say, eh, when you die, that's it. It just ends. How do you know? How can you prove that? It's a belief as well. And what if you're not right? That's a big question. Or here's another way. We personify death all throughout stories and literature, and we, we, we make death personal and maybe even befriend death to alleviate some of the unknown. Well, if death is a person. I can meet a new person, and that's not too hard except for the introvert, but I can meet a new person. I can meet death. You know, I love to give pop culture examples. I was listening to my favorite band this week, one of their songs on a new album, and it was a, it's a conversation between death and the singer. Here's the conversation. Oh, death, oh, death, I was just getting dressed. The place is a mess. I was, ho I was hoping you'd forget. But I can feel you in my chest, I can feel you in my chest, and death responds, oh, yes, oh, yes, death never rests. I can see you've done your best. The problem is just this. It's too late for regrets. I'm here to collect. Song goes on. The speaker says to death, Oh, death, I confess I should have known what to expect, but you're so hard to accept. Last time I checked, I was neck and neck and healthy as the rest and the next. You ever feel like that? I was just healthy yesterday. And death responds, Oh, yes, you were blessed. Blessed in the past tense, but it's too late now to make, make, it, to make it make sense. It's too late to pretend this day won't ever end. Well, that's super helpful, huh? <laughs> and the video, there's a picture of it. The video, death is a little puppet, and the speaker even's got his hand behind the puppet. He controls death, the little puppet there. If I could just personalize it a little bit, our culture does so many things to try to manage death, especially when you're the one with the hand on the puppet's back. 
We need knowledge of the truth to bring hope. So how else do we handle death? Here's another way. We try to help people and explain away a friend's grief with, with kind of, sometimes it's sort of a tepid consolation. We say, well, he's in a better place or she's free from pain, so you, know, you can move past your pain. God had a purpose. There's a reason. He's in heaven now. Well, first, is he? Is she? How do you know? You can only know that comfort by believing our second encouragement. Here's the second one. Jesus died and rose again for the forgiveness of sins. It's our second encouragement. Paul says in verse 14, take a look at it there. He says, this is what we believe. So you're uninformed, he says. So this is what we believe. In this historical place and time, Jesus died and rose again for sinners. And it's because of that truth that God will bring back those two who have died. That is our assurance of everything else that comes after in this passage. That verse 14 there. That's our assurance of everything else that comes after this passage. Like Jesus came from, back from the dead and from the grave, we will too. Romans 6 says, now, if we've died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. It's, it's, it's like we were, we were prisoners who've been freed. In the gospel of Jesus Christ, we, we have a pardon. We have a commuted sentence. And guess what? Jesus is the one who took our capital punishment. We are freed in the gospel. So that there is, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No, none, none. And if Jesus did come back from the grave, we better pay attention to everything he and his followers said, especially about death, if he truly rose. I mean, if he didn't rise, who cares what he said? If he didn't rise, then why do we care? But he did. And Paul says in this passage about those that died, he describes them as those that sleep, Paul says. Now that's not soul sleep, as some had said, like your, your consciousness disappears at death until the second coming or till the end of time. No, no, no. To be certain, one of the things we need to know, remember, knowledge for hope, to be absent from the body, Paul says, is to be present with the Lord. Right, present with the Lord in heaven, which is far better, Paul says, than living on earth. So our loved ones who knew Christ and have trusted Christ, they may, they are in, they are in a better place. But do you know what? For the Christian, heaven is a far better place. But you know what? That's not good enough either. That's not good enough either, actually. You might be thinking, what? Wait, 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 wait. He's saying heaven is not the best place? It's actually not. And that's why you still grieve. Do you know that? That's why you still grieve. The truth is our loved ones who have died, they are still living without a body right now. They're still living without a body. And that's not the way it's supposed to be, is it? So while heaven is a better place, it's not the best. Not yet. It's not best yet. Paul says here in this passage, we await the second coming of, of Jesus when the dead, decayed bodies will wake up from sleep and resurrected bodies and new physical 
bodies and a new heaven and a new earth will appear. That's best. So is it better now for those who've gone ahead? Absolutely. But it's not best yet. Their bodies sleep right now, Paul says in this verse. Waiting the resurrection. They're waiting for it. Like Mark 5. Do you remember that story about Jesus? The Gospel of Mark. When Jesus went to the home of Jairus, he was a synagogue ruler, and his daughter was ill, and he, Jesus went and found, or Jairus went and found Jesus and said, come to my house, come to my house. But you know what? On the way, there was an ambulance going by with some other sick people. Not really an ambulance, but kind of like that, a procession of busyness, and somebody else was sick, and, and Jesus got distracted on the way. And because of that distraction, do you know what happened in that story? She died. He got distracted on the way to help somebody, help by, help, by helping somebody else. The story goes on to say they grieved and they wailed and they were overwhelmed with grief at her death. And Jesus came to them and said this from Mark 5, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. Do you know what the response was? They laughed and laughed and laughed. Think of how insensitive to that family there. They were grieving their daughter and, and how ignorant of the truth, how uninformed that the author of life was standing right in front of them. And, and the beautiful story, it's such a beautiful story, goes on. And he goes to the little girl and, and, and he takes her hand and he says, Talitha Kumi. You know what it's like saying? He took her hand and was like, saying, hey, sweetie, hey, little one, hey, sweet girl, get up from your nap. Not just better, we want the best. She got up. She rose. And without this truth, not just heaven, that's better, but resurrection, second coming. Do you know what will happen without this truth? If you're uninformed, like Paul says here, your grief, which you should have, your grief will turn bad. It'll spoil. It'll sour. It'll rot. Even when the greatest enemy, death, comes against you and tries to rattle you from your security in Christ, Mark 5 says it's just like Jesus is saying to you, it's like waking up from a nice night of sleep. That's it. I have your hand, Jesus says, like he said to the little girl. Nothing, nothing, not even death can do anything to you. I have you by the hand. Wake up. Wake up. We need that truth. The truth. Because we have to grieve. We do. You should grieve. And I would even say it's okay to have a prolonged grief until the second coming even. Some of you especially, some of our widows, some of our widowers, you've shamed yourself because you still grieve someone who died years or decades ago. Don't do that. Your ongoing grief does not mean you have bad or weak faith. It doesn't mean that. Or somehow you're a lesser of a Christian because you just can't get over that grief. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean you're less, less of a Christian. Maybe it just means you need these truths more than anybody today or just as much as anybody and you need to see them worked in to your heart and soul and dwell on these truths. Look at verse 18. 
Therefore, encourage one another with these words. We need that encouragement so you can still grieve. It's okay. But what Paul is saying in this passage is it will change. And it's not like the grief of the world. That grief can be full of hope. Even while you grieve, you can hold them in tension, Paul is saying. Paul's calling us to a balance, but not in the sense of like somewhere between the middle of two extremes, griefs over here, hopes over here, and like we're on a spectrum. He's not calling us that. He's calling us actually to a balanced combination of both extremes, grief and hope. You can hold them simultaneously. That's how a Christian grieves. Grieve with hope. But we don't want our grief to go bad. Because if you, it does, it can become bitterness. And it can train wreck your life unless you season it with hope, like a cancer that can destroy you. So for the next half, here's what we're going to do. We're going to grab these truths. We're going to grasp these with a death grip. We're going to hold these truths about the second coming. And we're going to use them on ourselves, on our heart. Like they used to rub salt in meat so it wouldn't go bad. We're going to rub, we're going to massage, we're going to take these truths into our hearts so your grief won't spoil, so your grief won't rot, so your grief will be full of hope. Not just better, heaven, but best. Resurrection, everything. <laughs> everything. So let's encourage each other with the second coming. Here's our third encouragement. Let's take a look at it. Jesus will come again in space and time at any time. Come again in space and time at any time. Look at verse 15 through 17 with me again. This we declare to you by word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, the sound of a trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive will be caught up together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we will always be with the Lord. This text is the, it's the seminal text on one of the most significant events for the Christian life, the hopeful second coming of Jesus. Do you see Paul says there, then we who are alive will be caught up together with them. Paul doesn't say those who are alive or will be alive. He says we who are alive, and he seems to imply there that this could happen at any time, or in his lifetime at least, or at least in the lifetime of the Thessalonians. He doesn't chastise them and say, what are you thinking? He can't come soon. What are you thinking? He doesn't, have, he doesn't say to them, you have no idea. He's not going to come for another 2,000 years. Paul hoped and believed he would be coming soon, or that he could come soon at least. And he hoped in that. And the message of the Bible, too, overall, is that Jesus' return will be sudden, will be unexpected. That's something we can all agree on. Every Christian agrees on this. And that he will come in real body, in real space and time, Jesus said in Matthew 24, Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day the Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake, wouldn't he? If you knew when a thief was coming, you'd stay and watch, wouldn't you? And he would have not let his house be broken into. Therefore, you must also be ready. Be expectant. Be awake. Be ready. The Son of Man is coming at an hour 
you do not expect. And the last words of the Bible is Jesus saying, surely I'm coming soon. And John says, amen, come Lord Jesus. Maranatha, come, come on Jesus, come back. Come get us. And every generation since Paul has hoped that he, that he would come in their lifetime. We've all hoped that. We hope that. Don't you hope that? It's for a lot of different reasons. We've got all kinds of reasons we hope for that. One of them being a lot of us, we just don't want to experience death. I'm, I'll be honest. But I hope it's because you also want to see Jesus. But sometimes we grow weary. Because it has been a long time from our perspective. Didn't come in Paul's life. He didn't come in Paul's lifetime. He hasn't come in subsequent generations. We grow weary and we wonder, where, where are you, Jesus? 2,000 years is long. And the Apostle Peter talks about those who even scoff, as maybe they were in Thessalonica. Yeah, where's your Jesus? He said he would come. Where is he? I mean, would he, if he really loved you, would he wait that long and let you go through that much suffering and death and loss? Where is he? Peter had a response to 2 Peter. He said, don't overlook this fact, beloved. Be informed. Remember, don't be uninformed, but be informed and have hope. Don't overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness, but he's patient. That's why. He's patient toward humans and humanity, not wishing any would perish, but that all would reach repentance. So, Peter's got a response to that. He says, one day with the Lord is like a thousand years. A thousand years is like one day. He's not impacted by time as we would be. Why? So that the window of salvation, the possibility of salvation, would stay open in his grand patience. That's why he waits, Peter says. It feels slow, but it's not. Kind of like what they say about parenting. The years go fast. The days seem to go, are like they're forever, right? The days are forever. The years go fast. His timeline is not ours. Could it be in our lifetime? Yeah, I think so. Could it be 2,000 years from now? Could it be 10,000 years from now? Yeah, it could. It could. The important point is that salvation is still available. That's the important point about Jesus' tarrying. Salvation is still available for those who will repent and believe, even today. And Peter's point is there will be then a day when it's too late. There will be a day when it's too late. And so let that be a warning for those of you listening this morning who don't know him. And for those who do, let it be a comfort. But if you don't, Hear those words of warning. Jesus will return in a real body, in real time and space, at any time. And so encourage one another with these words. Out in the gathering place today, in growth group this week, in your Bible study, with somebody on the phone from church, what will that be like? Do you think about that? What will that be like when a curtain of sky is peeled back and the sky opens. And I, I think it's more like a new dimension entering ours in some sense. The sky peels back like curtains and Jesus is here. What will that be like? Well, here's our fourth encouragement. Jesus will come again and the dead in Christ will rise 
first. The dead in Christ will rise. Verse 16 says, the dead in Christ will rise first. That's what the Thessalonians wanted to know. That's what they really wanted to know. And Paul says, God will bring those, uh, bring with him those who sleep. And the dead will rise. And this is a personal resurrection for us, for you, for your loved ones who trusted Christ. It's a, it's a personal resurrection, a new body, our old body. A new body, but there's some continuity with our old body. Remember, Jesus still had the scars. They still kind of recognized him after a while. So a new body with some continuity with our old, but a new body, a transformed new body like Jesus' new body. This means that the world will be physical. You will run. You will jump. You will play. You will ride. You will uh, eat. You will hug. You will drink. You will sing with actual vocal cords. A real body. We're not angels with wings. We're not spirits. We're not gray spirits in some gray world. No, we're real embodied beings, the scripture says, with a new body. You know, some religions say we we return to the all-divine consciousness, or we're like a drop that goes back into the ocean. No, no, no. Paul says we rise with new bodies. Do some people still believe stuff like that? Peter Kreeft, he's a Christian philosopher, tells a story about some parents who had a seven-year-old son whose three-year-old cousin had died from illness. And the parents were not Christians. And so they were trying to help their seven-year-old son. Of course, he had questions. What happened to my cousin? Where is he? What happens when you die? Where did he go? What happened? And the parents sat the boy down and, and said to him, remember, remember, remember we watched that movie, The Lion King? You, you saw it. We saw that movie, Right? Remember it opened with that grand song. You remember it. The circle of life, right? His grand big song and animals dancing and jumping and and trumpets and the swirling building music. It's an emotional and it's heartwarming, beautiful circle of life. And they said to their son, you know, death is perfectly natural. Trying to explain Death. You remember the song, Lion King? Your body goes into the earth and it enriches the earth so other things can grow. Remember the circle of life. And their boy responded, I don't want him to be fertilizer. (laughs) (laughs) This boy knew more than his parents. He probably hadn't been hardened by living in the world for so many years. He knew he wanted a flesh and blood cousin back. Not fertilizer for the earth, the circle of life. That's actually a horrific message. We didn't think about it when we were watching it, did we? But later on, oh yeah, you die and become fertilizer? Great. Just as you want to hold a flesh and blood loved one who already died, you don't want to bag a fertilizer back. No, you want your flesh and blood person back and you will have him or her back if they died in Christ. Real body. It's not the shadowing world of wandering gray spirits. It's a world of personal relationships of love that go on forever and forever and forever. 
Yes, we believe right now our souls go to heaven when we die. But in the resurrection, we will get the body we always hoped for, the face we always wanted, the mind we always thought we had, (laughs) didn't have. And, And Jesus, he had flesh and bones too, real flesh and bones. We will too. What a comfort when he returns. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, which is kind of a parallel passage of this one. So is Matthew 24, if you want some other reading to kind of parallel. Paul's probably thinking of Matthew 24 when he writes this. But in 1 Corinthians, he says this, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown imperishable will be raised imperishable. It's sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, it's raised in power. Real flesh and blood. Jesus will come back and the dead in Christ will rise first. Here's our fifth encouragement. Jesus will come again and gather the resurrected and living to meet him. So what about those of us who are living at the time when Jesus comes back? I hope that's us. What about those living at that time? Paul says we'll be gathered up, gathered up together with Jesus and the resurrected Uh, uh, with Jesus, to meet them, to meet them, the resurrected ones, those who are alive, in the air. Verse 17, we who are alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds. Whether that's literal or figurative or, or dimensions coming, don't know, but it's some kind of coming to earth and earth meeting with heaven. In the clouds, this is a family reunion. This is a great potluck in the sky. Coming back together, those who are resurrected and those who are still alive with the family of God together. It's a personal reunion. Jonathan Edwards, in one of his famous sermons, talked about the relationships we have uh, on earth. Uh, On earth, the ones we have, even the best one. He described them as like a pipe that's sort of uh, clogged, and it never truly flows open and freely. He described those relationships on earth like that, that the love that flowed between those relationships was ever only at best like going through a clogged pipe. Ever have a clogged pipe? That's a nightmare, isn't it? Especially if it backs up. He says the best, and, and we know this, I think we know this, the best joy on earth is to be known by somebody and loved by somebody, to be known by somebody and to be accepted by somebody, to not have them walk out of the room when they hear something about you, to be known, loved, and accepted. But at best, Jonathan Edwards said in that sermon, it's on earth, it's like clogged pipes that only a little water love gets through. Do you know you've actually never been fully known by another person? Even the person that knew you the best, your spouse and families. There was still fear of rejection, it wasn't there. There still is for some of us right now. There's fear of rejection of being fully known. And in the church, that's a real problem. We, figure, we feel if I, if I let them know who I really am, they'll turn their back and walk out and never bring me back in again to the fold. To be fully known and loved at the same time, that's hope. And at this reunion, though, Edwards went on in his sermon, when we meet in the air... Edwards says, I kind of paraphrase it in my own words, he says, all of these things that reduce love to a trickle in this life, a clogged pipe, like at the bottom of the riverbed, think of the Malala going under Knight's Bridge in the summertime, it gets down just almost to a little stream. 
He says all the things that make it go down to a little trickle will be removed at the end and a floodgate of love, more like the Willamette Falls, (laughs) at the peak of rainy season. Our relationships at this reunion will be opened up like that. And a flood, a fountain of love will flow through open pipes between us as it never has. That's something I want to be at. That's something I want you to experience. Because at best, even our best love relationships are like that clogged pipe. We want the clean, wide open pipe. And when we meet the Lord in the air, we will have that. But what will we do? It's our sixth encouragement. We will meet the Lord in the air. Jesus will come again, and the verses say, we will be with him forever. Verse 17, we'll meet with the Lord and always be with the Lord. As I said, Paul's purpose here is pastoral, not necessarily eschatological. You're probably getting that now that we're going deeper into the passage. But the term he uses here for meeting the Lord in the air is a very specific term he uses. It's a term that, that kind of speaks to Go to the clouds and meet the Lord is what the verses say. But um, like I said, we don't know that. Is that literal, like white fluffy clouds? Is that imagery, poetic and prophetic and figurative language to help us understand? It's this grand thing in the sky and the Lord coming to earth. But the specific term he uses to meet the Lord, it was a term that was used in Greek uh, to kind of talk about a group of citizens that would leave the city to go outside the city when the king was returning from victory. So they could go and greet the king outside the city and immediately come back with him to the city to celebrate. Paul chose a specific term there on purpose. We'll go to meet the Lord, we'll be with him all for always forever, and return to the earth with him to celebrate that specific term, the victory of the king. This is the ultimate comfort Not just that we'll see loved ones in Christ, but that we will see them, and with them we will see Christ. Seeing or see the the reunion of hugging a family member isn't the best. The reunion of hugging Jesus with our family members—that's the best. We will see Him. We will be with Him. Theologians call it the beatific vision. Seeing God means beautiful sight. Beautiful vision. We will see Jesus, Paul says in this passage, and be with him forever. Seeing God face to face at his return. I love what Paul says about it. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. I see there will be a time when we are fully known. And fully loved and accepted in Christ. We see now dimly, uh, I, by, with eyes of faith, not with actual sight. Do you remember Moses in Exodus? He wanted to see God's face, didn't he? Do you remember him asking that? And God said, Moses, you think you can see me and live? <laughs> you can't see me and live. That would be death for you. You would, you would, come, you would come undone at the seams. Sinful humans can't be in God's favorable presence, Moses. Well, I think about it. Moses must have known something of the danger of asking that request, right? He had to know something of the danger. He saw a burning bush that didn't burn and heard a voice, an audible voice from heaven. He had to know, and and take off your sandals, Moses, right? This is holy ground. 
He had to know something of that fear. So why would he still want it? Why would he still want it? I think because what Paul is giving us in this, in, in this passage, when Jesus comes back to see us and we see him face to face, Moses still wanted it because that's the exact thing you and I were created for. Just always live with God face to face. From the garden, from the very first formation of human beings, we were meant to see God face to face. And deep down inside, Moses knew that you were created to live face to face with God. But we lost that. And I believe that all of our restless drives for acceptance and love and success and fame and wealth are just kind of feeble attempts to get at what Augustine said, filling up that God-shaped hole. All our greatest efforts. Think about it. All through the Old Testament, God was veiled, wasn't he? A burning bush, you know, you quite, can't quite see me. Turn your back, Moses, and hide in the rock. Let the cleft of the rock cover you, and maybe you'll see my backside. A tabernacle, he's behind curtains. A temple, he's behind curtains and in a special room. He's always veiled, and we can't quite see him face to face until Jesus. Until Jesus. For God who said, let the light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge. There it is. Not, not, don't be uninformed. Be informed. The knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So we don't have that yet, do we? We see it, like I just said, with eyes of faith, but we don't see it with physical eyes yet, but we will see him. We can see it with our eyes of faith, but we will see him. But when we even see him with our eyes of faith, we're taking that salt, like I said, and we're rubbing it into our grief like salt so that it won't go bad and we will live a different way. We will walk a different way. We will live our seventh encouragement. As gospel citizens, Jesus' coming again should fuel gospel living, not fruitless speculation. The second coming should produce gospel fruit in your life when you think about it, when you rub it in like salt. We are to be ready. We are to be expectant. We are to be looking for Jesus' return. But that readiness in the Bible, being ready is always characterized in the Bible by faithful, fruitful living. That's what being ready means. doesn't mean necessarily having charts and timelines, although there's some interest in looking at things in the Bible, of course. But in the Bible, being ready and expectant is always characterized by a, a, a growth and an increase in gospel fruit and living. It's not to predict the timing, to be ready in the Bible is to believe it's so certain whether or not you see it in your lifetime, you're always living as if it could happen today. That's what being ready means. That's to be ready. So a couple thoughts then. If your interest in the second coming causes you more speculation than fruit, it probably isn't healthy. If your interest in the second coming causes you to retreat from culture and retreat from non-Christians and pull up the drawbridge, guess what? It's probably not fruitful or healthy. If your interest in the second coming is maybe driven even by a little more or even mixed in by politics more than salvation, it's probably not healthy. 
If your interest in the second coming causes you to be paranoid or bitter or hardened against those people that are making the world bad, guess what? It's probably not fruitful or healthy. What did Paul say? Healthy second coming information will encourage you. Not make you paranoid, not make you worry, not make you fret or bite your nails. Second coming healthy information will always encourage you and take away your fear of death and fuel your gospel living. I got to read verse 18 again because I'm not making this up. He says it. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. That's why he said them. I mean, think about it. If we had these truths always before our minds, how would you live? How would I live? How would you grieve? What kind of comfort would you have? This kind of comfort. You remember when Jesus went to Lazarus' tomb? We're back to that town of Bethany again. Talked about a couple weeks ago with Mary and Martha and work. They lived in Bethany. Lazarus was their brother. He went back to that town, which was near Jerusalem, and Lazarus had been dead. Remember how many days? Four days. One of the sisters even said, Lord, uh, it's going to be messy in there. <laughs> and Jesus went to the tomb with his sisters, Mary and Martha. And you know what he did? What did he do? He grieved. He wept. He wasn't on a scale of grief like in the middle. No, no. He fully had the one. Even while he simultaneously held the hope of knowing, I'm about to resurrect him. See, there it is. He had both, the full grief and yet full hope. He weeps even knowing he would raise him, but he also knew something else. Do you know what happened on the day Lazarus died? Or excuse me, the day Lazarus was risen from the dead? John goes on in his gospel to say, that was the day the Pharisees and the Sadducees decided to kill him. It was on that day that he had gone too far. It was the final day, and it says in John, then they decided this man needs to die. Do you see what that means? Jesus knew that on that day. He knew he'd have to go in the tomb so he could bring Lazarus out of the tomb. John records it. He knew he would have to go through death so that he could have that day someday where we see him again after he's resurrected, and we do too. And yet he did it. He did it. Like today, like he's coming today. Live that way. Find hope in that. Resurrection is coming. I love this quote because resurrection life, I think, is going to make everything we've gone through worth it. Dostoevsky, that, that uh, Russian writer in that novel, Brothers Karamazov, it's on my bucket list, but I haven't gotten there yet. Not easy reads, Dostoevsky. But he says this. I love it from the book. He says, I believe like a child that the second coming, suffering will be healed and made up for. That all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage. That in the world's finale, there's the second coming. At the moment of eternal harmony, there's the relationships. Something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all, all hearts. For the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all the crimes of humanity, for all the blood that they've shed, that it will make it not only possible to forgive, but to justify all that happened. We'll look and say, it was all worth it. It was all worth it. Here's what I want you to do. Look down at those notes. Worship band's going to come and get ready. I want you to take two minutes, and I want to hear some chatter. Encourage somebody 
next to you with these words. We're going to practice verse 18 right now. Go ahead and do it, and we'll start a song in a minute. 